Well, it is good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, we start our series in Lent uh, this afternoon, and so we're going to be spending this week and the next six weeks uh, walking through the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. Now, if we're honest, most of our Easter preparations center around the week of Christ's passion, from the moment that he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday uh, through the Last Supper on what we call Monday Thursday, through his crucifixion on Good Friday to his rising from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. And so that's how most of us think through and process an Easter celebration. But what we want to spend the next seven weeks doing is focusing on Jesus while he's on the cross and focusing on the words that Jesus says from the cross. Last week, as we were closing out our time together, I said that we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's meant for our good and for our edification and understanding what it is to trust Christ for salvation and what it is to live for Him in the day-to-day. And so we trust and believe that the seven sayings that Jesus had from the cross are included in the gospel accounts for a reason. And so what we want to look at over the next seven weeks are the reasons for those words, the challenges that they present to us. And here's one of the things I think is most helpful, will be most helpful for us. If we're really honest, a lot of times we have trouble assigning or believing in the full humanity of Jesus. Like we don't think he was a hologram. We don't think that he was just, um, as some some call it, God in a bod, which I learned in in, uh, seminary and paid a lot of money to hear he wasn't God in a bod. He was fully God and fully man. And sometimes I just think we really struggle to understand the fullness of Christ's humanity. And so when you hear his words from the cross, it helps you understand his humanity a little better. It helps you maybe have a fresh perspective on Christ's life and Christ's death. And so that's one of the reasons that we're going to go this route for the next seven weeks. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Seven Sayings of the, of the Savior on the Cross, which is foundational to what we're going to talk about tonight and over the next six weeks, he helps frame what is ahead for us when he says this regarding the study of these seven sayings. We shall hearken to the words that fell from his lips while he hung upon the cross, words that make known to us some of the attendant circumstances of the great tragedy, words that reveal the excellencies of the one who suffered there, words in which is wrapped up the gospel of our salvation, and words that inform us of the purpose, the meaning, the sufferings, and the sufficiency of the death divine. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we come to the scriptures, as we open them and we look at the words of your son Jesus as he hung on the cross this week and for the six weeks ahead, I pray that we would look with eyes of faith, that our ears would hear, that our hearts would be challenged and changed because we've encountered your living word. And I pray that it would help us maybe in ways that have been foreign or felt foreign to us before. I pray it would help us identify with Christ and his humanity. And what we see in his dying moments, in his final words before giving up the spirit would we see the depth of his love for us and will we be reminded of the great care and the many ways in which you have loved and continue to love us in christ's name amen 
Tonight, we're going to begin by looking at what is called Christ's Word of Affection. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to John uh, 19. We're going to be in verses 25 through 27. And so over the next six weeks, seven weeks counting tonight, we're not going to cover a ton of Scripture in the actual text of what we're going to be uh, preaching through uh, because it's hard to... Once you kind of set the scene the initial time, it's hard to go back and reset that scene every time. So it's going to be shorter verses, but hopefully some really practical and meaningful application and understanding of what's going on in the life of Jesus or what he's trying to communicate to us from the cross. And as we look at these words tonight, these three verses, I think we're going to hear a challenge, a call, and lastly, an invitation to consider maybe again the perfections of Christ. So this is what John writes in John 19, 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. If we can back up for just a minute and appreciate the scene that is before us, it is a scene of unimaginable pain and suffering. I mean, I couldn't remember really the first time I ever wrestled with what was going on in this story that I read over and over again from the Gospels was when I went to the movie theater and saw The Passion of the Christ. And you begin to get a feel in that moment of what this experience was like. It humanized something that had been just a story on the words or words on the pages of my Bible. It humanized it in a real way. And so what we have before us is a story and a scene of unimaginable pain and suffering. Christ has been humiliated. He's been beaten and mocked. He's been paraded through the city of Jerusalem as a spectacle to behold. And now he is stripped naked and nailed to the cross with a crown of thorns mockingly on his brow. And throughout this ordeal, Mary, his mother, has been nearby watching with shock and horror and sadness and soul-piercing grief at what is happening to her son. She is living out the fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy from Luke 2, 34 through 35, when Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple to present him for circumcision. Simeon, a blind prophet, is waiting, and as he holds Jesus, he says to God, Now your servant can die in peace, for I have seen the consolation of Israel. And after he pronounces this blessing over Jesus, he turns to Mary, and he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is where we find Mary in this moment, experiencing intense anguish and grief alongside of her son who is being unjustly crucified on the cross. And it's in his words here in John 19, 25 through 27, that we see him honoring his mother up until his final breath. When we see Jesus honor his mother, Mary, the one thing we know or we're pretty certain is the case because of how infrequently he shows up is that before Jesus started his public ministry, his adoptive father, Joseph, had already died. Therefore, Mary is a widow in a male-dominated culture, in a male-dominated society. We know from the 
offering that they made when Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, that they were not a wealthy family by any means. And so his mom, Mary, is standing there. She is somewhere probably between her early 40s to her early 50s, which in the first century is advanced in age with nothing really to her name. And so she is dependent on her children to provide for her. And when Jesus looks on his mother from the cross, he honors her. And how does he do this? He does so through making provision for her care by entrusting her to the disciple whom he loved, who we know to be John. Now, Jesus, in one part, cannot in the agony of the cross disobey the law. For if he disobeys the law in this moment, his sacrifice would have become null and void. So here in these last moments of his life, there is no wavering in Jesus' commitment to keeping the command, which clearly states in Exodus 20, 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. And then that same command is restated in Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We are dependent. We were dependent even though we weren't born yet. Everyone who's ever trusted Christ for salvation was dependent on him remaining perfect up until he took his final breath. And so what you see in Christ's word of affection to his mother and his provision for her is his ongoing commitment to fulfill the command to honor your father and your mother. Now, if we're honest, when we read Exodus 20, 12 or Deuteronomy 5, 16, and we think about honoring our father and our mother, we often equate honor with obedience, right? Like we think, well, from zero to 18, I need to be really obedient because I live in my parents' house and they can discipline me and ground me and take things away and make life fairly miserable for me if I choose to be obnoxious and a brat. But then we think, well, after 18 or after I'm out on my own, obedience goes away and now this is really where the full impact of the biblical command kicks in because the biblical command is not to obey your father and your mother the biblical command is to honor them because what God knew is there would be a point in every growing child's life where they would reach a place in adulthood where obedience to their parents was no longer the primary way they interacted with their mother or their father but they were to honor them. Notice that the command isn't to obey, it's to honor, which includes obedience at the very least, but so much more. To honor our parents is to have an ongoing disposition of heart and dispensing of duties that communicates our respect and esteem for them. And Jesus sets this example for us with these words from the cross. Jesus looks at his mother provides for her and in doing so shows that his heart still is has an ongoing disposition of honoring his mother and this is the challenge of Christ's word of affection from John 19 25 through 27 it's how well are we doing in honoring those who we have commitments to either as sons or daughters or have other what we would call fleshly ties Maybe you were raised by grandparents. Maybe you were raised by an aunt or an uncle. How are you doing honoring those 
that are like parents to you? Or how are you doing honoring your parents? A.W. Pink in his book on the seven sayings says this regarding Jesus' honoring of his mother. And I quote, Jesus was engaged in the most momentous and the most stupendous undertaking that this earth ever has or ever will witness. He was on the point of offering satisfaction to the outraged justice of God. Nevertheless, he doesn't overlook the responsibilities of natural ties. He fails not to make provision for her who, according to the flesh, was his mother. Therefore, for us, no duty, no work, however important it may be, can excuse us from discharging the obligations of nature for caring for those with fleshly claims upon us. In other words, you're never going to be doing something more profound or more spiritually important than Christ dying for the sins of the world. And in that moment, he had the wherewithal, he had the love and the care and the concern to honor his mother. And it is wrong of us, it is sinful of us to say we are so busy that we can ignore the claims that our parents or others would have on us for need and for care and for honoring and for esteeming. And you may be thinking, well, Jesus says this, but he also says, unless you hate your mother or your father, then you can't be my disciple. So which is it? Like, do we honor our mom and dads or do we hate them and follow Jesus? Like, what, what are we doing here? If our commitment to Jesus is such that our love for him makes our love for our parents and others appear as if it is a, some form of hatred, then we will do right to honor and esteem and love them because Christ will call us to lay down our life in service to those who have a claim on our life. And so we don't have to pick between well, I have to disobey my parents on this hand because Jesus said I need to actually hate them. We don't read it that way. But we also read and understand that we are commanded to care for those who are dependent on us in different times in our life. And I think this is where the challenge lies for us as we consider Christ's affectionate words from the cross. Perhaps we could best wrestle with this by asking ourselves the following question. Are we using or have we used in the past religious language, spiritual service, or ministry opportunities as an excuse or a shield to keep us from honoring our parents or others who have natural relational ties to us? Now, depending on how we answer this question, we may need to make plans to visit our family. We may need to make a phone call or write a letter and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness and how we've used service to Christ as a means to indulge our sinful hearts. So as we consider Christ's affectionate words in John 19, it challenges us to ask ourselves how we are doing in caring for and honoring and esteeming those who we have natural relations with, be it our parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, those people that you know, I mean, obviously, it can't be everybody in your life, right? Like, don't miss, don't miss hear this and think, well, everybody, but you know the people who are closest to you. You know the people that you would say have a claim on your life, have a natural tie to you that would result in them having a claim on your life. How are you doing 
in loving and serving and caring for them. It is a challenge that is hard to answer and probably for most of us bears some semblance of confession and repentance in the days ahead. But it's not only Jesus offers us a challenge in his words of affection, but Jesus also issues a call for us to trust in his words of affection. Jesus and Mary aren't the only two people that are present at the cross when Jesus spoke at this point. We were also told that the disciple who Jesus loved, John, was also present, and Jesus speaks directly to him. But before we consider Jesus' words to John and this call to trust, we need to remember where John was just hours earlier. Earlier, he had been in the upper room, reclined on Jesus' chest as they shared in the last supper. Later on that night, we see John along with Peter and James with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where John himself struggles to keep his eyes open and his heart engaged in prayer as Jesus is pouring out sweat drops of blood, agonizing over what lays ahead for him. Then as the temple guard closes in on Jesus to arrest him, we see John along with the rest of the disciples fleeing. Abandoning their friend in his time of greatest need, they are fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 137, which had been quoted by Jesus earlier at dinner that says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As we remember this background, it should become stunning to us to see John standing by the cross and to still be considered the disciple whom Jesus loved. You would think If you're John and you've abandoned him, maybe you don't run back to see him be crucified. You don't want to go see what your betrayal and your running has led to. And so maybe you stay away. But here is John back with these women who have followed Jesus, who have ministered alongside Jesus. Here we see John standing and Jesus addresses him. And so if we were Christ... And we were in that moment enduring great agony and pain. And we saw someone who had abandoned us hours earlier show up. What would we say to them? Would we mock them? Would we ridicule them? Perhaps we would ignore them. Maybe we curse at them. But luckily for John and for each of us, Jesus doesn't choose any of those responses. The mercy of Christ on the, on the cross is absolutely stunning. Because he does not respond how you would think we would respond in our natural processing of what's happening to us and then looking out and seeing someone who had left us in our moment of greatest need. Rather than responding as we would, Jesus responds as one who is fully God and fully man. And he looks John in the eye and he entrusts his mother to John's care when he says, Behold your mother. And immediately after, John's gospel says that he, John, took Mary into his own home. What trust Jesus displays in John. Trusting entrusting his mother to John's care when just hours earlier John had abandoned him. Think about the affirmation 
of how Jesus views John as one of his dear friends and most trusted earthly companions to give his mother into his care, even with all that has just happened. Think about the tender words of affection that fell on John's ears in those moments. Can you hear the compassion and the affection of Christ for John when he says, Behold your mother? Affectionate words of trust, tender words of care, both for John and for his mother. Jesus is from the cross, continuing to minister to those who need it the most. And he's ministering to and entrusting his mother to a man who hours before had ran away from him like he didn't want anything else to do with him. What's our heart's experience with these words of Jesus to John? Perhaps you're like me and you think John's abandonment, while egregious, isn't nearly as bad as the sins you are aware of committing daily. Perhaps maybe you feel as if you've blown your opportunity for effective ministry and Jesus will never entrust meaningful opportunities for gospel work to you again. Or perhaps you feel as if Jesus is waiting on you to come back to him so he can read you the right act for all the different ways that you've failed him and disappointed him and caused him to suffer. All of the above are lies from the enemy that are meant to keep us from coming to Jesus for forgiveness and recommissioning. When we see Christ's words of affection to John, we hear a call to trust God's ability to forgive us and still use us for ministry purposes. We hear in Christ affectionate words for John, a call to come back and trust that Christ is dying for his sins and Christ still has meaning and purpose for John's life ahead and at least part of it is meant to be spent caring for his mother so perhaps tonight you need to hear the call of jesus inviting you to come back and trust him inviting you to come back with all of your shame with all of your dread of how he may respond to you with all the ways that you've convinced yourself he's really not that pleased with you and maybe you need to come back to the cross and stand with john and stand with mary and hear the affectionate words of christ Settle on your heart and in your head and remind you that he will call you back. And he will give you gospel work to do. No matter how egregious the sin, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, and there's the promise of being recommissioned. A.W. Pink sounds the call for our return when he says, and I quote, may divine grace melt your heart. May the power of God draw you back to Christ where alone your soul can find satisfaction and peace. Here is encouragement for you. Christ did not rebuke John on returning. Instead, his wondrous grace bestowed on him an unspeakable privilege. Cease then your wanderings and return at once to Christ, and he will greet you with the word of welcome and cheer. And who knows but what he has 
some onerous commission awaiting you. The word of affection that was spoken to John and to us is a word that is meant to end our estrangement and bring us back into the presence of our Savior and our King. When we were growing up, my sister and I, and some of you maybe have heard this story before, my sister and I liked to play a game of my sister's uh, devising that would always involve me getting hurt. So the game changed, but the end goal was always the same, was can I hurt my brother in some form or fashion? And so one year on Mother's Day, we had gone down to my grandparents, and we were, we'd eaten lunch, and we were playing. All the adults were inside. It was just my sister and I. We had gone outside, and my grandmother had her garden hose out, and she had been watering the flowers the night before. And on the end of the water hose, she had one of those uh, yellow fan head uh, sprinklers. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. And so we turned the water on, and my sister started to swing the uh, garden hose around, the top, around her head like a lasso almost. And so the game became, can Chris run in and get back out before getting wet? That was the game we played. We're, we were not the smartest kids. We've grown up and done well for ourselves, but we weren't the smartest kids. But what I didn't know is that every so often when my sister's arm would get tired, when she would pick the garden hose back up, she would let more slack out into the garden hose. So this was getting incrementally longer the longer we played the game, but I wasn't warned of this. And so finally, on my last mad dash in, as I went to duck in underneath, the garden hose was further out than I realized, and the edge of the sprinkler head caught me square above my eyebrow. And everything just kind of froze for a moment. The garden hose froze we froze, the water froze, and I just threw my hands up to my face. And when I pulled my hands down, there was a copious amount of blood coming out of my head. My sister goes, we'll fix it. I said, no, 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 there ain't no fixing this, sis. We, we are dead to rights. I said, I'm going inside to tell mom. She said, no, 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 let's fix it out here. Remember, it's Mother's Day. Up the step I go, my sister hot on my heels, trying, she's now a nurse. If this would have happened six months ago, we could have fixed all this outside and no one would have ever known. In I go, covered in blood. There's no hiding the fact that we've done something we shouldn't have at this point. There's no hiding the fact that we were both being silly and now we had ruined Mother's Day. And so when I walk in, I Everybody, know, there's no hiding that something has gone terribly wrong when you're just bleeding from the face. And you know what? We may have got punished later. I don't remember. But I do know this. In that moment, my mom wasn't mad at me. Nobody was mad at us. They just knew we needed help. So my mom didn't say, oh, my gosh, you've ruined my Mother's Day. Just go out there and bleed until you're done bleeding. And then come back in and talk to me and bring me another set of roses or whatever, you know. I walked in, busted, bleeding, all of my own doing. And my mother loved me and she cared for me. And when we hear Jesus' words of affection for John, we hear that same tenderness. And it gives us the confidence to walk into the presence of our Savior, busted in our sins, bleeding, unable to fix ourselves and you know what if we've trusted in christ he's not going to condemn us he's not going to say i can't believe you would do that he's not going to say go out and get all this sinning out of your system and then come back and talk to me 
He's going to tell you that he loves you. He's going to tell you that he forgives you. He'll fix you in ways that you cannot fix yourself. And then he'll send you right back out to continue being his son or his daughter. The same way my mom did for me on Mother's Day all those years ago. This is the call to trust in the effectiveness of Christ's work on your behalf. It's a call for us to end our estrangement, end our sins, and come back home again. For we have a Savior who is waiting to welcome us. So as we consider Jesus' words both tonight and in the weeks ahead, we see a man who is in complete control of his death. I hope that over the next few weeks as we work through these sayings of Jesus from the cross, it becomes evident to all of us. Jesus was not out of control in those moments where he was facing and going through the agonizing death on the cross. Jesus was always in full and complete control of himself. During the entirety of his time on the cross, he never loses control either of himself or his words or his emotions. Here is Christ proving his own words true concerning his death from John 10, 17 through 18, where Jesus himself says, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Every one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross is evidence and proof that Jesus is laying his life down of his own accord. He is not having his life taken from him. He is not abandoning the divine prerogative to die in our place. He is laying his life down as the innocent, spotless lamb in our place. And I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Those are Jesus' words. And as we consider his sayings from the cross, we see a Savior in complete control of laying his life down. A man who has the wherewithal to care for his mother in this moment is a man who is laying down his life of his own accord. We started here tonight. We started with this word of affection from John 19, 25 through 27. Because of the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross, this one is unique in that it was not tied to a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled, nor was it a response to a unique situation he faced during the crucifixion. Maybe you read it and you go, well, Jesus could have made some plans. I don't know, maybe like the whole week before on who was going to care for his mother. He had been telling them for weeks now that he was going to Jerusalem to die. Surely he could have handled it before he gets to this point in his death. These statements then didn't need to be made from the cross. So why does he say these things and why does he say them now? Jesus says these things to comfort Mary in the moment, yes. But he also said them so that his followers down through the ages, including you and me, would know that God sees us. He really does see us. For who we are and all of our questions and all of our sins and our doubts and our contradictions and complexities, he sees and he cares about the littlest detail of our life. It's stunning to think about that God really sees you and he knows you. And he knows the smallest 
detail of what you need provided in your life, and he is going to meet those needs. Jesus will never again be caught up in a moment so agonizing, so painful as the crucifixion. And in those moments, he still saw his mother, really saw her, and provided for her. He has moved heaven and earth to be with us, and now there is no need we have that is so insignificant, so inconsequential, that we can't bring them to him. He cares about your day. He cares about your loneliness. He cares about the financial burdens. He cares about struggling to be a new parent. He cares about understanding how to lead a church better. He cares about how your job is going and that relationship with a very hard to get along with coworker. He cares about the smallest detail in your life. And he sees you and he knows you and he stands ready to meet it. He still speaks affectionately to us today. So we close tonight by leaning into and trusting the truth that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. He has deep affection for each of us who belong to him. When was the last time you really thought that Jesus was affectionate towards you? Not just tolerating you, but moved by deep affection towards you. To know your needs, to care for you, and to meet your needs. As Peter would write, and this is really the only point of application for this, maybe the entirety of the sermon tonight, outside of the challenge of his word of affection. This is maybe our only point of application. Peter would write it later in his first New Testament letter. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray.